I have a, um, a, I think like a quarter of my library now upstairs, and which is really good for me, but may not be so good for you, because now in between services and stuff, if I have a thought, oh, I remember, and the book is upstairs, that adds another five minutes to my sermon. <laughs> so, uh, if you please would uh, turn with me to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. And I'll be reading the entire psalm. Psalm 1. Hear the word of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And he meditates, excuse me. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish." Uh, Luther commenting on this psalm, he says that the blessed man is Jesus Christ. And he's absolutely true. He's absolutely right. The, the only man, really, who is ultimately and truly blessed is the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I, I wasn't going to include that in my sermon. But as I was thinking about that, uh, this thought came to mind from... Warfield, and and it's instructive. It's an instructive thought here because uh, we live in we live in a fallen world, and we struggle with our own personal sins. And then there are the sins of Christian people, the sins of churches, and then just everything that's going on in the world. We live um, we live in a world where blessedness is not what we think it ought to be, and we need to allow the word of God and God himself to um, instruct us on what it means to be blessed in this world. And I thought about this article that B.B. Worf wrote maybe a hundred years ago, more, maybe more, on the emotional life of Jesus Christ. And if Jesus is truly the blessed man, why did he suffer? Listen to these words of, of Warfield. Uh, very instructive here. And then we'll think about what it means to be a blessed man, of course in light of the scriptures, but with this and the Lord Jesus Christ as the backdrop. And consider these words. It is germane to our inquiry, therefore, his inquiry into the emotional life of Jesus, to take note of the fact that among the emotions which are attested as having found place in our Lord's life experience, there are those which belong to him, not as man, but as a sin-bearer, which never would have invaded his soul 
in the purity of his humanity, save, unless, he had stood under the curse incurred for his people's sin. What's the point he's making there? Is that there is a, there, the sufferings that Christ endured, he would have never suffered them if he didn't come into the world to be our savior, to bear our sins. The whole series of his emotions are, no doubt, affected by his position under the curse. As Paul says, he became a curse for us. Even his compassion towards sinners receives from this a special quality. Is this not included in the great declaration of Hebrews 4.15? For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. That, that, that verse, that he was tempted the way that we are, he suffered as we did, without sin, but we must consider it when we think about the Lord Jesus. Can we doubt that his anger against the powers of evil which afflict man borrowed particular force from his own experience of their baneful working? You think, um, we've been preaching through the Gospel of John, or I've been preaching through the Gospel of John, and you've been listening. <laughs> and um, there, the Lord Jesus Christ, he'll, he'll say things to people. He came into the world to reveal who God is, and he'll say things to people like, I am the light of the world. And... What will happen in light of that statement because the Pharisees are the children of the devil is great hostility and hatred. He'll endure. Slanderous accusations. The power of evil is, was working against the Lord Jesus Christ his entire life. And the sorrows and dreads which constricted his heart in the prospect of death culminating the ex extreme anguish of dereliction so in the Psalms, you have that language, right? My God, or that wording, or the statement from Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If the father responded, he could have said, for your people. And the sorrows and dreads which constricted his heart in the prospect of death, culminating in the extreme extreme anguish of dereliction. Do not these constitute the very substance of his atoning sufferings? As we survey the emotional life of our Lord as depicted by the evangelists, therefore, let us not permit to slip out of sight that we are not only observing the proofs of the truth of his humanity and not merely regarding the most perfect example of a human life which is afforded by history. That is how unimaginable is that? That when you open your Bibles to particularly Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's everywhere in the Bible, but as you, and here, the blessed man is Jesus, ultimately. But as you look at those Gospels, what you're reading is, uh, as he puts it here, the most perfect example of a human life. And uh, 
right? So, so he grew up in a, in a mansion covered in diamonds and rubies and eating everything he wanted and enjoying, right? He had an iPhone and... No, he was a blessed man, but he suffered. But are contemplating the atoning work of the Savior in its fundamental elements. The cup which he drank, the cup which he drank to its bitter dregs was not his cup, but our cup. And he needed to drink it only because he was set upon our salvation. <laughs> so now, but he was the blessed man. He had communion with God in such a way that no man has ever had. Moses goes up to the mountain, right, to speak with God, or God shows up to Moses' tent, and what happens? His face shines. He has to cover it with a veil. Jesus ascends the mountain with his disciples, and he is blazing white in glory. <laughs> All Peter knows how to do is put his foot in his mouth when he sees that. Should I build some tents? <laughs> Because we're going to live here, right? <laughs> so, so when we read psalms like this one, because there is application to us, of course. And David did not just write this psalm, or uh, th this psalm doesn't have a, a subscript. We don't know who the author is, but if it was David, or, or whoever it was, of course, he, he is writing this for us, for our instruction. Yet ultimately, the blessed man is the Lord Jesus. But we have to understand what it means to be blessed by God in the context of the Bible. And we cannot allow our world, right, our context in history to determine what it is to be blessed. I think that's one of the banes of the Christian church in America is that we allow popular culture to determine what it means to be blessed instead of allowing God to reveal to us in his word what it is to be blessed. So the psalmist begins, he said, blessed is the man. And the position and context of this blessedness means something like, oh, the blessedness of the man. And the stress is laid on the fact that those who fulfill the conditions that are laid down in this text, because there are conditions, are blessed. And it's plural. It's the blessedness. Literally, or the blessings. Here, here, here we're, we're going to see the blessedness. And first, negatively. Here, here, here is the blessedness of the blessed man. He does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, of the wicked. Uh, he, when he is seeking for advice... The first place he goes to is to the word and to the testimony. And then to the advice of wise counselors. He doesn't immediately turn, he doesn't at all, he ought not to, turn to the ungodly and the wicked. But that is what 
you will do passively. That is what you will do passively. If you focus your life on popular entertainment. I mean, and it's everywhere. We took a ride to, uh, we took a ride to New York City yesterday to buy pizza. And, um, and you know, we were joking around the, the entire time, talking and, and whatever, you know. And uh, you, you could do things like that, and, uh, and you could listen to the news, you could listen to secular music, you could do all of those things. And you know what? There, there is, it isn't necessarily a sinful thing to do. But when that is all that is that you're receiving, right? It's, it, your life is shaped, right? The soundtrack of your life is secular music. The conversation partners that you have in your car, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, the world, either, you know, podcasts or news programs or whatever it is, you're not, you're not positioned, you're not positioned, 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 what's going on here? I, mean, maybe I need a little coffee. Sorry. You're not positioning yourself to be, that came out better that time, to be the, a blessed Man, and note this, who walks, who stands, and sits. You know, for, for, for preaching, this would, you could really work on this and make it a whole bunch of things, but the, the point of those three statements is, is this, is that your life everything that you do in your life. It's not necessarily that one, I think this is inaccurate, that one of these, right, so, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits, uh, excuse me, walks in the council, nor stands in the path, nor sits in the seat. This is not a progression. That's not what the point is of the Hebrew there. Hebrew uses a lot of parallelism like this, and the purpose of the parallelism Parallelism is to emphasize the point, a point, and what is it? What is the point that the world ought not to structure the way that we think? Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, turn there with me. Here's here's the, the words of of the blessed man. Matthew chapter 16 and verse uh, 21. Matthew 16, 21. Here is the blessed man. He just finished interacting with his disciples, asking them, who do do men say that I am and who do you think that I am? And Peter, beautiful statement, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says amen to that. And then he tells them this. From that time, from the time that Jesus knew that they understood who he was, he, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. These were the people who were ought to be leading men to Christ, they were the ones who were uh, 
who when the Messiah came should have been the ones who were bringing people to him. And they would be the ones who posed the greatest opposition to the Lord Jesus and killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. You know, Peter, Peter, is think, Peter, Peter is thinking this shall not happen to you because you're the king. Uh, for all of his faults, Peter understood who Jesus was. And he may have had a bit of a big mouth, right? He was more talk than action. But he was willing to lop off somebody's ear when they came to get Jesus. And the, what, what Peter means here... I think, from the rest of the gospel is, I will kill someone if they tried to do that. But what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And what the psalmist is writing in Psalm 1 is, in essence, he's telling us, do not be mindful of the things of men. Do not allow the, the, the things of men to overburden you and to concern you so much that they overpower your decision-making and your actions. No. We will allow God to be God, and we will allow God to determine what we think what we do, what we say. And that is what the psalmist is writing to us. And he is telling us that to be blessed, we must be mindful of the things of God. But not the things of God generally. You know, not like, um, and it's, I mean no offense by this, it, and I don't mean like a Hobby Lobby theology, right? <laughs> you know? Live, laugh, love. No. There, there, is some, there is some specificity, some specificity to what it means to set your minds on the things that are above where Christ is seated in the heavenly places. There is some specificity to it. Listen to verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. To delight in something, to enjoy it. The righteous man takes great joy in the Word of God. Um, I've I've uh, I've dealt with this difficulty. Maybe some of you have dealt with this difficulty. You, know, you sit down to read the Bible, and you start to fall asleep. But somebody turns on, you know, a, I don't like sports, so this would be a lie if I said it was for me, but let's say for you. Somebody turns on sports, you're boop, eyes open right up. Oh, who's playing? What, what, what inning? You know, how many goals have they shot? <laughs> I, think that's, I don't think that's right, but you, you, you get the idea. 
That is why we have to be mindful of the things of God. Because if, if what we primarily put before our eyes and what we primarily store up in our hearts are things of this world, the things of God, of course, they're going to be mon- mundane and, and very uh, unappealing to us. We will not delight in them because we have not learned to prize them. Well, how do you do that? And in his law, he meditates day and night. And to meditate means to ponder by talking to yourself. right? Instead of talking to yourself about what, to continue with my faulty sports analogies, instead of pondering, man, that, the pitcher should have thrown it to first. Instead of trying to get the guy who was on third base, all of that was correct, right? Yeah. It depends. And we do that kind of self talk. We do that kind of self talk all the time. Instead of taking the Word of God and talking to ourselves about the things of God, meditating upon it, really delighting in the law of God so much that that becomes the topic of conversation easily. It's, It's not difficult. When, and, uh, when people are around you, they know that it's not difficult or awkward for you to begin to talk about the things of God. It's just, I know that when I'm around him, he's going to talk about Jesus. You know? <laughs> right? Because you're musing and you're thinking about these things. And they begin to determine the way that, in, you know, in the snap of a moment, maybe your husband or your wife says something or your kids do something, but you've been meditating on the word of God so that sharp answer you usually would give you're able to you know slow it down delighting in the law of God meditating upon it and now we have this beautiful illustration he illustrates it for us so he gives us first what the blessed man is not like the blessed man does not set his mind on the things of man the blessed man sets his mind upon the things of God He takes great delight in it. Why? Because he is constantly thinking about the word. And now he illustrates it for us. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. By channels is the idea. It's not just one but it's, it's The idea isn't that there is a stream and this tree is able to kind of dip its feet into the water, right? Its roots have grown down into the ground and they've made their way through the rocks and, and they're, they're in that stream and it's drawing water from the stream. That's not the idea. The idea is that this tree is planted and there are these channels of water all the way around it so that no matter where its roots are going, it's, it's getting all of the nutrients it needs from the soil and drawing up all of the water that it needs. It's planted there by these channels of water. And that's what it's like to meditate upon the Word of God. Many Christians, you know, they struggle. They struggle with assurance. They struggle with with, uh, personal sin. Or maybe they struggle in a a relationship with another person. And they don't know what to do, right? So they'll listen to Dr. Phil or whatever, right? How to win friends and influence people. You know, they'll, they'll read those kinds of books. When they have this... Just like this reservoir of wisdom at their disposal. 
And what's interesting is that this tree has been planted by these rivers. Somebody put it there. And God gives us this book. And he tells us, plant yourself here. This is where you ought to plant yourself. And when a person does that, they brings forth fruit or its fruit in its season. Do we have we have fruit trees out here, right? Do they produce fruit every season? Not every season. In its season. Right? There, there, there's a time when the tree produces the fruit. Why? Because it's received the, the, the uh, necessary nutrients. Right? And there is an amount of time that uh, from, from the roots coming in contact and from the leaves of absorbing the sunlight and from all of those things coming up into the tree and then got, you know, the process, whatever that is. And then, then, the, then the fruit comes. You know, there, there are certain trees that where there is just a fecundity, right? It's just, a t- just, they're always producing fruit. There are other trees where just once a year you get a ton. Well, that's how it is for the Christian person. You know, the, 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 that fruitfulness will come in its time. Some, one-fold, two, five, ten. 20, 100, whatever it might be. But always in its time, as long as they've planted themselves in the scripture, whose leaves shall not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. You think about that. That is an amazing statement. Well, the, the, but the prospering here doesn't mean that I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna open a barbecue thing with Wes over here and we're going to get rich. For those of you that didn't eat any of the pulled pork because you weren't here, you don't know what I'm talking about. That, that's not the the, 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 the... the idea of prospering here, I'll use the metaphor, means that you will be fruitful in it. You will gain fruit from it. Right? You can gain fruit from failure. You definitely can. You think, you go, let's take a more Christian example. Well, let's say you decide, I'm going to share the gospel with this family member. I've been praying for them for, um, you know, for, for a while, and they're going to come into town, right? I'm going to invite some, you know, I'll invite the people that I know are relatively evangelistic, and we'll start a conversation, so this is going to set them up, basically, right? This is a perfect setup, and um, you have the conversation, and they don't become Christians. Did you fail? No. That's fruitful. Right? You've, you've, you've planted the seed. And now you just, you, you just let that little seed germinate and take its time. And now you pray more. And then when the opportunity opens up again, you water again. Faithfulness to God is prosperity for the Christian. That's what it really means to be prosperous in this life is if we continue to be faithful to God, even in the midst of adversity and difficulty. Look, again, remember the backdrop of our Savior. 
If he suffered in this world, why do we think we're just going to walk through it with no difficulty? That's not the path that Christ has chosen for his people. Now, we may think, man, if I had the opportunity to plan the way that my life was going to work out, I'd do it way better than God. No, you wouldn't. You would be a rather miserable person. God knows exactly, right? He, he knows the right amount of medicine that we need. And sometimes the medicine is bitter. Right? I remember my mom giving us cod liver oil when I was a kid. I don't even know if it did anything, but, you know, she credits my health. Right? <laughs> you know, to the cod liver oil. Boy, that stuff was horrible. And sometimes God will bring us into situations, physical health fails, finances fail, family fails, all of these things around us fail. And we immediately think to ourselves, oh, I must, God is not blessing me. No, that might be the blessing. It might be that very difficulty, right, the, the, the stress of that difficulty, if you've been grounded in the word of God that is going to produce fruit in your life. And if you're sitting here thinking to yourself, oh, you know, oh, that is true, That's, it's not relevant to me, you fall here in this next category. The ungodly are not so. They, they, do not, they do not really prosper in this life. You know why? Because they don't do anything for eternity. Well, how, how, how worthless it would be, right, to, to hide millions of dollars, you know, in, in your mattress, right? And then to have it burn overnight. And that's exactly what the unbeliever is doing. No matter, no matter where he reaches in his uh, career or in her career, no matter how much uh, material things they accumulate, no matter how much physical joy or, or whatever they experience in this world, it's like chaff that the wind blows away. Right? Because it's temporary. No matter how long they live. If God gives them 125 years, that's nothing. It's chaff that the wind drives away. It, it, it has no weight to it. Right? it there's, there's no real value or substance to the life of the unbeliever. And to what they accumulate in this world. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. And here the idea is, there's, a, there's a, the idea of a courtroom, but then also what you have mixed here, in here a little bit is the idea of shame. Right, so um, when a person is shamed, what is their posture and their position? Their head hangs low. They're not going to stand. And on that day of judgment, you know, when the, uh, uh, he won't usher in, but just for the sake of the illustration, you know, if the unbeliever were to, let's say Bill Gates, right? Bill Gates walks into the presence of God with all of the millions of dollars and all of the vaccines he's created. <laughs> right? He's walks in. It's worthless. It's nothing. It's nothing at all. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. 
If you have built your life on the sands of this world, you won't be able to stand on that day of judgment. There won't be anything for you to stand on. The foundation that has been laid for everyone to stand on, everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, is Christ himself and his righteousness. That is what the believer is building his life on, right? And depending on how long you've been building, right, you, you may, you may uh, go to heaven and all you have is a shack without a roof, but you've built on the right foundation. The unbeliever, he may have a castle. He may have a dome, right? <laughs> he may have a huge, right? But it's built on a, on a worthless foundation, and it's just going to crumble and sink to the ground when he stands before the God of heaven. When, on that day when Jesus calls people out of the depths of the seas and out of tombs and under, from under mountains, and everyone has to stand before his presence and give an account for their life, what we've accumulated in this world and what we've devoted ourselves to is going to be nothing. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation, in the, the fellowship of the righteous. There is, um, in the church today, in every church today, even in the best churches, there are unbelievers. There are unbelievers who are members of those churches. In Baptist churches, we don't do it on purpose. But either they're, you know, uh, sometimes unbelievers are deceived and they believe they're Christians and they have a false conversion and there is some light that is shed upon them and they will join themselves to a church and for all that everybody in the church, the membership can tell, this is a brother or a sister or a couple that uh, they are Christians and they'll be allowed into that fellowship. But in time, it, it's revealed that they're not. And then biblical churches will follow the instructions that Jesus gives in Matthew 18 and Paul gives in 1 Corinthians and in other places in the New Testament. And what, what do you do? Well, you put those people out of the church, right? That is what you're supposed to do. And here's the idea. This idea of this is a real disfellowship. This is into utter darkness. Why? Why? Why, why is it that it happens this way? For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. God knows. God knows not only because he can see. You see, the, the, the way that I act and the way that you act here in church may not be the way that you act in private. Remember, we were... We were uh, Two, two weeks ago now or something like that. We've been reading about Mr. Talkative in Pilgrim's Progress, right? And what, what does Bunyan say or Christian say about that man? He's one way in church and he's a different way at home. He's a devil in his house. God, now God sees that. So that's here. God knows the way of the righteous. He, he, knows, he knows them in the secret of their heart. He knows them. But not only that, he's also prepared that path for them. But the way of the ungodly, they shall perish. 
It's not that God doesn't know that way, but that way is a dead end. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that's where you're heading. It doesn't matter what you have or what you've done in your life or what you've been able to accomplish or your kids or your grandparents or whatever. It means nothing. It really is worthless. What counts ultimately and what will count on the last day is if you've humbled yourself and sought forgiveness in the person sought forgiveness from God in the person and work of his son that is ultimately what will matter i don't preach mother's day sermons but do you, uh, you do you want advice on being a good mother you want to be a good mom you want your kids you know when when you die cuz you will unless the lord comes back or some difficult providence comes into your life, you will outlive your children for the most part. And when they're there, standing before your grave, do you want them to look, you know, tears in their eyes, of course, sad, they miss their mother, but do you want them to say, she, she was a blessed woman, and I was blessed to know her. You must learn to delight yourself in the law of the Lord and to meditate on it day and night. Allow the word of God to shape, fashion, and form the way that you live. Not the, not the world, I'm telling you. All the, the makeup and the pretty dresses and the nice fingernails, all of that stuff and all of the money and all of the things that you think you need to have, you don't need any of it. Those things matter very little to God. Ultimately, what matters is the hidden beauty of the heart. Do you have it? You can have it in the blessed man. You can have it in Jesus, perfectly, completely. You could, you could not be Christian right now, but confess your sins to God and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are the blessed person. And then you can die on your way home. And then go right right into the presence of your Savior. Probably not the best way, right? You didn't want that illustration to end that way, but <laughs> that's the way I chose to end it. <laughs> so, as we close, let us remember that we must allow God to determine what true blessedness is. We must allow God to teach us what it means to be blessed in this world and how one becomes blessed ultimately, right? For justification, blessedness comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in, in sanctification, blessedness comes through dependence upon the truth that God has revealed in his word. And glorification, blessedness will come when our beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes from heaven and he turns our lowly bodies into resurrected, glorified bodies. So in light of these things, brothers and sisters, let's pray. Let's ask God to bless what we've learned today and then we'll stand and sing the doxology. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, what a blessing it is to know you. What a blessing it is to know your Son, and to be able to read of his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his session now in heaven. 
And what hope we have that one day he shall return. And he will make us truly blessed. We thank you for him. And we ask that you would work in us individually and corporately by your spirit. And conform us into the image of your son. Use your word to do this, Lord. We depend and rely upon you alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.